Hi, I'm Laura Carlson, host of the Feast Podcast, where we dig deep into the great meals that made history. Our new season has just launched with a first episode that uncovers the myths of space food, from freeze-dried ice cream to tang. Don't miss a meal. Subscribe today to The Feast on Apple Podcasts or wherever good podcasts can be found. You are now entering the Podglomerate. When I write, I'm trying to capture that feeling of, for me, the best thing in the world is where I stay up till three or four in the morning because I can't put a book down. I'm always trying to write that because that experience to me is far and few between and it's the best. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Jeff. And I'm Kyle. And that's Jeff's new apartment you hear in the background welcome yeah. back to the city i know uh well according to our listeners nobody knows i ever left the city oh well jeff did um his roommates were his relatives i won't say which ones for his benefit but uh you know he's it, back now it was all of my brothers and cousins and loved ones uh he was in a flat with 17 people in the great state of new hampshire and now i am living above a bar in manhattan that uh that den of f- f- drugs and filth this uh, i feel like we should just call it writers who don't sleep yeah i mean we that's are what that's what it's that's what it feels like yeah i mean i would call it that but i also feel like just at this point in my life i will never sleep anyways uh who have we got on the show this week this week on the show we have jen brody who is the author of the continuum trilogy the third of which was just published a couple weeks ago uh, Jen is awesome and spent half of the interview trying to convince myself and Kyle to move out to LA. I'm uh, not... I needed no convincing. I feel like I was just shadow uh, boxing trying to get you on board. Also, we nerd out pretty hard in this interview. I feel like we spent maybe 40 minutes talking about all of my favorite nerd things and some old movies. To confirm, I actually think I cut most of that. Oh, well... It was fun while it happened. Uh, we talked about Harry Potter and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and uh, why Lord of the Rings is the best. Yeah. I mean, it was actually super interesting, but it's also, it was a lot. So I decided that, you know, we would give you a lot of it, but not all of it. So we got to hold some back for the bonus episodes that we never make. Well, I mean, I just figure you guys don't want like an hour and a half of us nerding out. Uh, tweet us if you do. Because it's there. So, Anyway, here's Jen. Go out and buy the Continuum Trilogy and then come back and listen to this episode. Uh, I think you will be really, really happy that you did. Let's get to it. Welcome, Jen. Thank you for having me on here, um, and especially for someone like me who's um, more of a newer author on the scene, it's always exciting to um, have any attention, let alone folks read your books and respond. So thank you. You say you're a newer author, but you actually just published the third book in the Continuum series, correct? That's correct. The United Continuums just came out about a week ago. I'm in the middle of promotion craziness. So um, my brain's a little scrambled, but I'm proud to report that I'm still with you. 
<laughs> still working, <laughs> um, still trying to write. And um, I have one more launch event coming up this weekend and then hopefully a little more downtime. But yeah, it's exciting. I can't believe they're all out in the world. What a crazy thing to see them yeah. all together. Well, I, I want to do the opposite of what I typically do on these interviews. Um, and I want to start by asking you about your books and the trilogy that you have out. And I was hoping that you could give us like a little capsule uh, summary of, of what the series is about and like what the Spoiler landscape Spoiler free, obviously. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Um, sure thing. Um, well, the book is a trilogy. They are um, technically young adult science fiction, um, but they skew a little more crossover than a lot of young adult, and they are a little bit harder science fiction than some things like Hunger Games or books like that. Mm. Um, so the first book is The Thirteenth Continuum. And it takes place after there's an event called the doom that destroys the surface of the earth. And before that happens, uh, humans are evacuated into different colonies. So some of them are underwater deep in the ocean trenches, some are underground, and some are in outer space, including a Mars colony. So people are supposed to go into exile for a thousand years and then return to the surface to recolonize. So the book tells a little bit about the evacuation as told from the president's youngest daughter's point of view. And then we more let's go about a thousand years in the future to see who has survived, how they've survived, and who will return. So we pick up underwater um, with Myra. She is an engineer. Her father is the head engineer. She's 16 years old. And um, she discovers that their colony uh, may not survive much longer unless they can get back to the surface. Um, and they're ruled by this kind of crazy religious totalitarian society and very oppressed. You can't even say the words the surface. Um, and then more or less we go to outer space where we pick up uh, Captain Arrow Wright who uh, lives in a spaceship military colony. Um, they're sort of modeled, modeled on ancient Sparta. And so he's a 16-year-old soldier. He commands a unit of other 16-year-old soldiers and they're about to deploy and be the first boots back on the ground. So we kind of go in the first book back and forth between Myra underwater and Arrow in space as they struggle to get back to the surface and learn how to communicate through an ancient device called the beacon. So that largely is the first book, and then second book picks up, and then third book kind of brings it all to a head. So, um, yeah, it's kind of an epic situation. So I wanted to ask you about that because, I mean, I heard in another interview that you really love world building, and I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about how you do that as a writer. Because as a reader, it's just like, you know, you start out, literally in like a bedroom um mm -hmm. and then you just keep on introducing like one more element and then one more element and until it turns into like this you know galactic world and i i, I guess i'm curious if like you had this entire thing conceived of from day one or if you actually started as the writer in that bedroom I work from world and concept, so I very much did have most of the big broad strokes of the world. But once I construct and build, um, I really try to ground in character and in a relatable situation to kind of bring the reader in and kind of not overwhelm them, bring them into the story, and then bring them into the huge world. So I actually work really hard on kind of trying to craft that and also ground in character. My stories are really big ideas, um, but they're very character driven in my opinion. I really spend a lot of time um, working on that aspect. 
So um, this book idea came from a very small seed of an idea during um, the BP oil spill, if you remember that, uh, mm. a number of years ago. And I was uh, watching all the news footage, and I was horrified by you know the oil just spreading out over the surface of the ocean. And you know how oil kind of floats and coats the ocean. And I started to think about um, what would happen if we couldn't live on the surface anymore, but we had to go really deep to survive. And I've kind of long been obsessed with underwater stuff, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, James Cameron's The Abyss is a huge influence. Um, so it's kind of interesting that we know more about the surface of the moon or Mars than we do about our own deep oceans. So I started kicking around this idea about underwater. And once I kind of broke it, it became this idea of why would it only be underwater? It would be multiple environments. Um, and then I started kind of expanding. And that's kind of when I was like, oh, no, I got to write three books. Ah, <laughs> you know, like, how do I pull this off? Like, this is crazy. <laughs> but um, I couldn't shake it. And I really wanted to do it. And I'd had a first novel that was on submission at the time, but getting rejected everywhere that ultimately did not sell. And so this book kind of became my haven. It was where I kind of hid out <laughs> and like escaped. How do you make sure that you don't go too far with this world building? Yeah, I mean, I teach world building and I talk about it. And I usually say, because re research and world building, so this also would apply to anything that, that is um, maybe even historical fiction or research-based, it can be this rabbit hole that just like sucks you down because it can be so pleasurable, just the world building itself, that you don't ever actually end up writing anything. Um, you know, it can just be this hole you go down and down and down. And it can even snag you in the middle of writing where you find something, oh, I got to research this one point, And then all of a sudden, and it's days later and you're Googling your, you know, everything. So um, for me, I usually just build and research enough so that I can see it. I got to be able to see it and it needs to be real in my mind and then I can write it. And so once I get to a place where I'm at there and I can start writing, I usually will. Um, I know people who obsessively build binders and build all these like world documents. I don't do that. I have like crazy notes scattered everywhere and emailed to myself and in notebooks, but I don't go too far. And I think part of that is, you know, I want to get away from it at a certain point and I just want to write my characters and write enough so that I can bring you in, but I don't want to inundate you and info dump you to death. So it's, it's really tricky, especially because I tend to build things that are very removed and very far in the future. Um, so I have a lot of work to do. But yeah, that's sort of what I do. And then I, I think about character a lot. You know, I think about people, people, stories. What happens when you put the character into a situation and you've run into a part of the world that you haven't quite fleshed out yet? Does that ever happen? Oh, yeah. I mean, because a lot of it is, you know, as I'm taking characters on a journey, even if I've sketched out and built big parts, I haven't necessarily built everything. So it's like um, in my underwater colony, there are six, no, 10 sectors. Haha, <laughs> I don't even remember them all. But there'll be parts of the book where I'm like, oh, sector 10 is the spare parts room, but then I haven't really sat down and thought about every detail of what that room looks like. So I might have mm -hmm. to then stop and think about the architecture, the layout, the smells, the feels. Um, you know, so I might have to pause and think um, or fill in later in a revision draft or something. So yeah, of course that happens. And for me, I'm exploring too as I'm writing. And especially with these books, as I opened up, 
up into um, Return of the Continuums and the United Continuums, books two and three, um, they really open up world and we start to get into other uh, maybe colonies and other parts. Um, so I had to do a lot more work. I was like, it's not like I wrote one book and I could kind of rest on my laurels and be like, hey, I already told you what Hogwarts looks like. I can just keep writing Hogwarts. No, I had to keep writing more worlds. So I definitely sounds, bit off a lot. <laughs> it sounds like you might have like a little bit of a process when it comes to working through what a new environment is like because you started to say you know what does it smell like what does it feel like is there a like a set playbook you run when you're in that situation um, I wouldn't say there's a set playbook. I mean, I do try to think about senses and, and specificity of details um, that might make something feel more real. I work a lot with allegory, too, and historical allegory, or even just inspiration from things that I really love. Um, so, for example, um, the outer space colony, the second continuum, I very much modeled on ancient Sparta. So I had a big leg up, actually, because they could just go in and look at how did they organize their culture? How did they test their children to get them trained for the military and I actually just lifted most of that directly I was like there are there are societies that have run their whole world based on military so I can just kind of look and research even take the names so a lot of the uh, proper names in the second continuum are taken from Sparta so Hmm. yeah and like underwater was a, a dark ages allegory so I was able to do a lot of research I was very interested in how we go from this pinnacle of technology and civilization and then lose it all because at the height of the Roman Empire, we descended then, you know, mm. into tribal warfare, basically. Um, Isaac Asimov covered that a lot in Foundation, and I'm kind of super obsessed with Foundation, and it's a huge um, influence on these books and on me just generally. It's amazing stuff. It makes for a really nice um, juxtaposition because you have, like, I, d- I didn't pick up on the fact that it was an allegory for the Dark Ages. Uh, mm. so I don't know what that says about me, but it was it was an interesting juxtaposition to see these people living in uh, squalor in what is essentially the height of like technical engineering. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then if you think about it, I'm really interested in the intersection of where technology becomes so advanced. This is where I'm going to sound so nerdy, but uh, so advanced that it's almost like magic. So I always say like your iPhone, like that is magical. That's as magical as like the wands in Harry Potter, like things crazy, right? If you went back a hundred years and like showed it to people, they'd be like, that is like magic. And so I like to think about if we lost or if we came into some big kind of catastrophe, how long would it take back, uh, take to get back to building an iPhone? It would take a long time. Like how long would it take to make a pen? It would take a long time just to even make a little simple pen and paper, you know? Um, So yeah, and then there are further deconstructions I was able to do. I mean, at the heart of these books, um, I was just really interested in kind of isolating different groups and kind of setting them on trajectories and seeing how they could evolve differently um, you know in isolation so it was it was a fun thought experiment I suppose yeah and you uh, and I know this only because uh, my sneaky research habit is to just to find every podcast that our future guests have already been on um, I love and, that you did that yeah <laughs> so uh, because of that I know that you are very influenced by the Star Wars and the Lord of yes. the Rings universe yes and, so I wanted to to mention that and use that as kind of a transition to the fact that you used to work in the film industry. Um, can you can you chat a little bit about that? And I promise yeah. all of this is relevant. 
No, I, I'll, I'll confess to having been in Hollywood for a time. Um, now I'm a, I'm a huge, well, I just think I love storytelling in all formats, um, but I am a huge film fan. I love movies. I love going to theater. I love the experience of seeing, um, I like spectacle films, like the big stuff. I mean, I like smaller storytelling too, but there's just nothing like when you go see like Terminator 2 for the first time or The Matrix or Fellowship of the Ring. So I grew up in a really small town in Appalachia, like up in the mountains in Virginia. Um, and I didn't know anyone in Hollywood and I didn't know anything about how to do any of these things, but I was very obsessed. I think at five, I started saying I was gonna be a film director. Um, <laughs> and I used to just watch so many movies. I also read a ton. I was an obsessive, voracious reader, um, but I think my parents caught me watching Goodfellas when I was too young and they canceled HBO. And I was demoralized. And I remember just arguing and being like, but it's good cinema at least. And they were like, you're too young. And I was like, but it's brilliant, um, which it is. <laughs> so anyways, I really wanted to get out. And college was a ticket out. And I um, went to Harvard. But I studied film there, which made me definitely a weirdo in terms of the culture um, of Harvard, which is a little bit preppy and a lot of investment banker consulting economics majors. So I uh, was lucky enough to get an internship when I was um, in college, and so that brought me to L.A. for the first time, and I'd never been here until I set foot um, to start my new job, and I had a horrible commute from the west side to the valley. I was interning at Disney. And so that alone was just amazing for me. Like, I was in the old animation building. The Disney lot is phenomenally cool. That um, sounds so cool. So cool. Like, just walking in and seeing all the framed panels from the classic films. Um, you know, M. Night Shyamalan, this was, like, at the height of, like, Sixth Sense, had his crazy fancy office upstairs. Um, the producer I interned for was named Hunt Lowry, and he had worked with Michael Mann, who used to call a lot. Um, he produced Last of the Mohicans, which is one of my favorite movies and we had just finished the company had just finished um, a Bruce Willis film so we had like that big kind of movie and then they were in production on a small film they were financing which was called Donnie Darko little known <laughs> small little movie right um, Jake yeah. Gyllenhaal's first film boy was he so young the writer-director was kind of fresh out of film school, and it was a small production, and it shot in L.A., so that was kind of amazing just to be able to be there and see all of that and meet all these folks. So I was hooked. I was like, that's it. I'm coming to L.A. So, yeah, I came out after college with no job and little money, and I got a really a job that paid me nothing, um, working for a very difficult person named Michael Bay. <laughs> and uh, we were launching Platinum Dunes at the time, which is his kind of horror, uh, I guess, um, label. And uh, we were remaking the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> wow. And, yeah, I'm a big horror movie fan, though, so it was rad, but uh, my parents yeah. were very concerned about me. They were like, we put you through college, and you're doing what? You're remaking the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? And this is back when no one did remakes. Like, it was just weird that we were even doing that. I think we were the first, so you can love or hate us for that. Um, I remember that movie vividly. Did you see it? I did. I saw it in theaters. What did you think? It's scary, it, right? It's freaked me the fuck out. Uh, the, there are a few cinema experiences where I've like truly been scared. The first is when I had an experience that sounds like yours, where I watched Predator when I was way oh, too young. Obsessed with Predator. <laughs> my parents didn't take HBO away from me. My dad just laughed at me a lot. <laughs> when I woke up screaming in the middle of the night because he told me not to watch it. 
um, and Texas Chainsaw. <laughs> And Texas Chainsaw Massacre stands out as I think that one I was closer to uh, I was a little bit older for that one, but it still was like, I'm not going to spend any time in the darkness for the next two months. Yeah, it's super intense. I mean, Marcus Nispel, um, who directed it, shot a super intense film. Um, I, I actually am pretty proud of it. It did really well for us, too. But yeah, so then um, I wasn't there that long because it was a bit of a challenging work environment in some ways. So I went um, from there to New Line, which was kind of my dream job at the time um, because Fellowship of the Ring had just opened. And that movie <laughs> blew my mind. I'm a huge Tolkien fan. My dad is. He got me into it. And I was like, this movie whatever I can do to work with people who worked on this movie um just I'll and never forget also very seeing jealous. That. Yeah. I mean the, the first film it was just so it could have gone so wrong it was just one of the great for me cinematic experiences was seeing it um so yeah I actually started out in business affairs I didn't work in development right away but I figured hey I'll work for a lawyer I'll learn stuff about making deals um New Line was making so much cool stuff at the time both the kind of more indie stuff like Dancer in the Dark and then the big stuff like Fellowship of the Ring so um about on my eight month nine month mark they um went to human resources to say hey I want to move to development and they were like and we're hiring a second assistant for Mark Wardusky and I was like dream job um so he ended up hiring me it uh actually they hired someone else who didn't work out I was (laughs) devastated this tells you about persistence and all that I was devastated and then they fired him and they were like hey you still want this job I was like do I ever the best Um, part that ever happened Yeah, I mean, you know, and who knows what could happen. I think at the time, I didn't know how many resumes were coming in, thousands for that job. I don't think I quite knew how stacked that deck was, um, and I think that's probably for the better, because it might have scared me off. Um, But Mark is awesome, and I worked for him for years. We're still um, good friends and in touch, and um, so Mark is largely responsible for uh, Lord of the Rings being at New Line. He... Um, was old friends with Peter Jackson from back in the day when he tried to buy stuff like Bad Taste and all Meet the Feebles and all those kind of low-budge horror movies. And so um, that was sort of how Peter had come to the studio. Um, so anyways, I kind of got a frontline ticket to... I uh, started working for him uh, before Two Towers had opened, and then I worked all the way through uh, Return of the King coming out. So, yeah, <laughs> it was rad. I'm not going to complain. That is so cool. Yeah, so that's kind of the big background. I also produced, I left after New Line, I, I was an exec. I produced some stuff for the Weinstein Company, a little-known dance film called Make It Happen. Um, <laughs> gloriously with uh, Tessa Thompson in it, who is completely blowing up now. She's an amazing actress. Um, she's in uh, the new Thor movie. She's in Selma. She's in Creed. She's oh, amazing. Wow. She was in Westworld. The, she, oh, that's Tessa Thompson. Yes. Tessa she's Thompson. fantastic. Oh, my God, right? So I cast, cast her in a teen dance movie a long time ago. She was amazing. You, I mean, that is a, that's a, a good find. She's incredible. Yeah, she's actually Westworld. a good dancer. She go dig up oh, the yeah. movie. <laughs> so oh, man. Did, did your Hollywood experience like influence at all? how you approached writing this book these books big time yeah big time but i would say it's not just my hollywood experience although most of what i did in hollywood was work with writers on crafting story and i think that really helped me kind of have an eye for structure 
and for how to kind of build. Um, but it was also just the underlying material, like my love of like, you know, things like Star Wars. I mean, Star Wars, I always say this. I'm like, why does anyone care about Star Wars anymore? It's like not the weird shiny robot in the Tunisian desert or, you know, all that stuff and the stilted dialogue. It, it, it's the archetypes, right? It's the Joseph Campbell, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, like the hero's journey. journey, right, the mentor, all of that. I really strongly believe that's why um, Star Wars is so impactful and we care so much. That's kind of the heart. Um, the, the loner comes in to save the day. Yeah, oh my gosh, completely. Like, you, I mean, like, it's just so classic. And I think, you know, Lord of the Rings is, you know, another, um, just, it invented a whole genre. I think you can't write fantasy without uh, being in dialogue with Tolkien. I mean, Game of Thrones is completely in dialogue with Tolkien at all mm-hmm. times. Um, so, you know, for me, just like my love of that stuff, um, I think really influenced the kinds of stories that I'm ultimately um, drawn to tell, um, which is big world building, um, really classic art archetypes like um just kind of transportive i guess for lack of a better word i'm always Let's searching talk. that and, and and is the 13th continuum going to be a movie hopefully keep your fingers crossed i got um some pretty good news today um i can't say who exactly is involved i can say that zero gravity is producing who is an awesome company, Ty Duncan over there. Um, they just did that Ozark show on Netflix that everyone's talking about. Um, yes, they yes, did like yes. The Accountant. Yeah, they're awesome. So um, our full film package is together. We have a very big director producing. We have his protege directing, and we have a screenwriter who just attached, who I worked with years ago, and I'm a big fan of his writing. So and we are just getting that all together, and we'll be going to pitch studios um, probably after Labor Day. So anyways, I'm excited. Wow, that's huge. Yeah, it's pretty so, big. I feel I feel strong about it. I'm on an info dump. Yeah, yeah sorry, it was a lot of info, but you know that's kind of how it works now. You kind of have to put your um, package together. So I think the ideas are really strong, and I think it's kind of in the sweet spot of what studios kind of want right now. So we'll see. But. Well, so so the reason I I mention all of this is because one of the impetuses of actually starting this podcast was that Kyle and I had been working together on a uh, kind of like a dystopian novel. Um, Mm. And, you know, the plot line is, is similar in the sense that there are archetypes and heroes and that kind of thing, but very different in terms of actual uh, like implementation structure. But uh, we ended up bailing on the project. Um, I mean, there was, Uh, first of all, we haven't bailed. Kyle is going to blame me for this. (laughs) But I, there didn't, is, I didn't know it was dystopian. I knew you guys, that's kind of the impetus of the podcast was the not writing part. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, and this podcast has been like a growing experience because, uh, I mean, Kyle does not, but I actually now do like a lot of journalism and, and write in, in many, many aspects of my life. Um, but at the time, we had knocked out like 100 pages of this thing. And, uh, and I had personally stopped because there was just too much else going on in my life. Mm-hmm. But, excuse me, um, but the reason that we we like set out to do this in the first place is a that we wanted to write this great story, and b um, I had worked in the book industry for several years, Kyle in the film industry for a while, and uh, we thought that we could craft a story um, based on like the best and most commercial elements of a bunch of other stories that were out, mm-hmm. and uh, you know sell the hell out of the thing, um, mm-hmm. and I know that like some people think it's taboo to talk about that but like ultimately you're writing these things in order to try and sell them so was Absolutely. that 
Yeah. So, I mean, like, I, I was hoping that you could talk to us about, like, any, like, specific designs or implementations you may have made in order to make this, like, more of a commercial draw for editors, agents, publishers. Um, because you mentioned earlier that you had a, a previous book that you couldn't sell. Yeah, and that's true. And actually, this book was very difficult to sell um, because it uh, came out and went on submission in kind of this post-Hunger Games wave where everyone had decided they didn't want science fiction. And they weren't really distinguishing between different types of science fiction because we're like, this isn't like the Hunger Games. But, you know, but you kind of got thrown into that. Um, so you can't really, I think it's very difficult to predict the market in terms of, um, you know, because to start writing a book, you're looking at probably like 18 months, two years to come to market. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to know. I don't even think right now the publishing industry knows what will be popular or hot in two years. I think I mean, you, can, I can you can always bank on vampires. Oh, nobody wants them right now. That's the thing. I mean, you would think, but no, that we always get, it's in the abs and horror. They're dead. And oh, no, it's back. Something like Get Out will hit. Oh, it's back. Um, something like Twilight will hit. Oh, vampires are back. And now we don't want them anymore again. So we're in this kind of cyclical, I hear that sci-fi is back. I don't know. That's what I hear. Yeah. Um, so what's interesting for me is that publishing never seemed, um, they just seemed a little behind the curve on my series, whereas Hollywood has always been super interesting even when it was unpublished. So there was this weird disconnect between um, what producers seemed to want and what the publishers seemed to want. And I was just like, okay, this is weird. Um, we'll just keep like kind of persisting and see and find the right publisher, you know, who can get behind the vision for this. Because I also didn't want to compromise. So what I would say is, did I make do it to make commercial? I think I just have taste that spans commercial. Like I mm -hmm. love that big stuff we were talking about. I'm a true fan. I'm a giant Harry Potter nerd, like giant. Like I'm a Ravenclaw, like I have an Etsy wand, like I love it. I have an annual pass to Harry Potter worlds. So I just love that stuff. And I think, you know, maybe some writers don't love it or aren't drawn to it. So maybe they shouldn't write it. For me, I love all the big sci-fi stuff. So I mean, my thought on it is that, you know, uh, I love the big worlds and I love this idea of writing books that can be uh, adapted into different mediums. And I think um, science fiction is really, really apt for adaptation. And I'm just always trying to capture for myself um, at, when I write, I'm trying to capture that feeling of, for me, the best thing in the world is where I stay up till three or four in the morning because I can't put a book down. I'm always mm. trying to write that because that experience to me is far and few between and it's the best. And so when I'm writing, I'm trying to capture that for my readers. And in terms of the film, I want to do the same thing, which is what I just said, which is that experience of going in and sitting down and being transported um, to a different world. So, I mean, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm always aiming for, because it's what I most love in the world. So, so I guess my question though is like, what if, like, is this specifically book related or do you just want to get your work out there? Like if somebody were to, if a studio came to you and said like, we want to make this film, but you can never sell it as a book, would you say yes? Oh, that's so complicated. Cause usually we publish the book first. I mean, I mm -hmm. do have some projects that are, um, in development 
in a way. Um, one is a short story I wrote that's sort of, um, for lack of a better word, the Philip K. Dick style, like total recall. I mean, it's going to get pitched, I'm sure, as like Arrival meets Looper. But anyways, um, it's kind of this big world building short story and I've never published it. I did workshop it with uh, an author I love, Victor Laval at Ten House. I don't know if y'all know Victor. Yeah, yeah he uh... yeah. Wait, what was the book that he published like a year or two ago? Um, well, there's Changeling, which just came out, but Devil in Silver. I think that was it. We, uh, just, he's great. He, he's friends with a bunch of guests that we've had on the show before. I'm a huge fan. I think he's probably one of the best writers working right now. Um, his new book is astoundingly good. Um, so I workshopped this with him and then sold Continuum, so I just kind of forgot. Um, but I've recently, it's resurfaced as a film project, and I'm partnered with a pretty big screenwriter, um, and she wants to direct it. So we're going to adapt it together, hopefully. Um, but it's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, and then I'm going to sell it as a book too. You know what I mean? So for me, it's always like, I, I guess I would just do the film, but I like the idea of how having underlying material or being able to build it out into a book because you know with a film you can't there's things that get cut out it's like if we talked about even with Lord of the Rings there's a ton of stuff that's in those books or even in the appendices that's not on screen Mm -hmm. right and so when you come to it with the depth or even um, Game of Thrones I know we're behind where is the book but like there is a lot that is not on screen right so if you've read the books there's this different perspective so yeah. I like having them in conversation and it's the same with Harry Potter like how much underlying material is there you know yeah and I mean it's the same with like all the different new media industries like even Gimlet's new podcast Homecoming or I guess not new it's a year old is being turned into a film and they're selling a uh, a book version of it which yep. is kind of cool because it's exclusively on iBooks. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And I've just been reading about some new film packaging deals. A lot of Hollywood places are moving pretty aggressively into book packaging as well. Um, and I have taken meetings. I mean, for me, I prefer just I want to write my own stuff, like my own IP. Um, but yeah, like a lot of things. The 100, that show, which is pretty popular, um, there are books. They are ghost written. Um, and uh, they were sold after the show. It's packaged. I think it's Alloy did it. So yeah, that's a thing. Wow. Yeah, yeah a lot of I'm, YA, a lot of YA. Like you know, it's it, it, even dating back to like Nancy Drew, right? Those are packaged. Mm-hmm. The hundred, by the way, is a guilty pleasure of mine. I've seen every episode. <laughs> it's really, it's a, it's a really great show, and it's um, my books just came out in Russia, and I will tell you, there's a ton of Russian fans of the one hundred that also love my books. I get a lot of messages about both. <laughs> So, yeah, it's popular around the world. Um, yeah, and they had, I mean, my big beef with 100 is, like, what were you doing getting rid of Wiki, Ricky Whittle? I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah, he, uh, Shadow Moon. Oh, my gosh, yes, I'm obsessed with uh, Gaiman and American God, so yeah. he's perfect for Shadow. He is, he's so good, and I, I think the 100 is what kind of, like, set him off, because I, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but, like, that was that his first, like, big job? No, it was, and then they were just really underutilizing him. Um, some, there's some beef with the showrunner, and he was just tired of, he didn't care about the money, he just wanted to work, and um, he got American Gods, and he was like, all right, <laughs> see ya. I'm out. Yeah, yeah, but no, it, it is absolutely what launched him, and I think he was yeah. kind of, you know, a revelation coming out of that first season. He was, he's just great. He was so good. He was the most exciting piece in the first season, for sure. Well, now now that you have the books out and you are uh, like you know theoretically going to sell the hell out of this movie really soon, um, I hope so. Yeah. 
I'm, I'm curious like what your book promotion looks like and how it feeds into the the film because i know you have a bunch of like small side projects that are, are helping to launch uh your your book career yeah, I mean, I think on the promotion side, it's just sort of like this wild, wild west where no one quite knows what sells books anymore and how to market them. Um, and so I kind of just kind of say yes to a lot of things right now. Um, I do a lot of online stuff and I have a community with a lot of writers. So, um, and I, I actually do a lot of stuff with indie published and self-published writers because guess who knows how to market books? Oh, yeah. Those writers. Like, yeah. you want to know who, like, the people who have no clue? It's the very traditionally published folks a lot of times don't really know. Um, but go talk to some self-published authors that are, are doing really well. Wow, they know what to do. So um, I just did, like, a big online event with some of them, and I was just like, you guys are way more savvy than me. Like, I just want to learn. Um, so I do that kind of stuff. Plus I do young adults. So, you know, a lot of kids like going to book launches and coming to bookstores, that's kind of antiquated, right? Like mm -hmm. how many 15 year olds? Yes, I do get, I definitely do get kids at them and teens, but you know, it takes means, it takes car, it takes parents bringing you, um, versus being able to hop online and come to like a Facebook party or, um, we just did a big bookstagram tour, um, with a bunch of teen bookstagrammers posting. Um, so I find that is much better because I have readers that are just all over the country and now all over the world, you know, so it's like, that's an easier uh, way for me to meet people. But that said, I do do the traditional in-store events. Um, I did my launch here in LA at a great bookstore called Skylight Books. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big fan of the indie bookstores and I try to do as much as I can um, to support them and to be involved with them um, versus the more corporate I guess there's only one. <laughs> um, but I mean, and I, and I have worked with them and I do do things with them. But for me, it's those, you know, bookstores that are run by really passionate people that really care and really care about reading. Um, so I'm going down to San Diego to Mysterious Galaxy on Saturday, which is one of my favorite bookstores um, run by an awesome um, woman named Mary Elizabeth. And they specialize in sci-fi fantasy spec fiction. Um, so what? it's just a really special place. Yeah, yeah. We had to book it around Comic-Con because, you know, they're always a presence there. But this is a store where, like, anyone who's anyone in this genre will go and do a launch. And they have been amazing to me from the very beginning, which I will never forget. Um, so I tend to do stuff like that. Um, I am on a lot of panels and things lately. Um, you know, and I just, I just kind of try to get my name out there and do as much as I can right now. I'm lucky that Los Angeles has a really booming literary community. Um, so I feel very lucky to kind of have that here. What does that look like? What does that booming literary community look like? Well, what's kind of happened with LA is that we used to kind of get, you know, not spoken about so positively in terms of our culture. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that. Um, you know, because we were kind of like, oh, you guys just do Hollywood or you just do this or that, um, kind of ignoring you know, Philip K. Dick lived out here, you know, Charles Bukowski lived out here, like kind of ignoring that there's always been a lot here, um, and especially get into music, get into whatever. Um, but what has happened with the socioeconomic shift, I think, in this country is that a lot of cities that classically had a lot of artists and creators
creatives like San Francisco, like New York, have become prohibitively expensive and unaffordable um, to creatives. Um, so they, a lot of those folks have been coming to L.A. because L.A. is very spread out on, I guess some people think that's negative, but on my perspective, I think um, we'll never be contained by geographic barriers the way some of those cities are. So um, people just move. If one area becomes expensive, they just migrate to another area where you can get space and cheap rent and have a community. So right now we have a huge visual art scene that's really booming. Um, galleries have just gone up everywhere to support that. Um, and artists need space to work. So that's why a lot of visual artists have been moving here. And then there are writers that I never thought would leave Brooklyn. They were like Brooklyn institutions who have like secretly like moved to Los Angeles. And I'm like, oh my God. They're like, we're cheating on New York. I'm like, welcome to the best coast. But um, so with that influx, there are a lot of reading series that are moving here, um, some that I've become aware of recently um, that are moving here to start up from New York. Um, and then there's also just like because of Hollywood industry, there's a ton of writers out here. You yeah. know, and a lot of writers also write books. And um, and I just love it because I think what I say about L.A., two things. I say um, this is a city for dreamers. Like most people who move here do it because they have a dream. And you can't say that about a lot of places, right? It doesn't mean they'll succeed and the dream really varies. It could be fashion. It could be any number of things. Um, but just take a lift. Pretty sure your lift driver is trying to do something interesting. Um, and then I also say, you know, um, for me, I grew up always being the weirdo and not fitting in. Um, same at Harvard. And here, I've never felt weird. There are people far weirder than me. Um, and I've always felt like being creative here isn't looked upon as a weird thing or with disdain. Like you're just not surrounded by investment bankers and lawyers. You're like, oh, you're a writer? Cool. I'm a writer. Or I know this. Or, you know what I mean? Like it's this real community. And I think artists need community and need support and to feel valued. And I think here there is a lot of that. Um, so I don't know. I just love it. I'm never leaving, um, especially after that election last fall. I'm like, I'm never leaving California. <laughs> Woo. Killing yeah, we, me. Kyle's Kyle's trying to move out there soon, and we have this, uh, yeah. The, this this was my passive aggressive way to try and convince Jeff. Kyle, uh, come to L.A. Come. Oh, I'm I'm halfway there already. We're we're just waiting for the the other shoot to drop at this point. Woohoo! Um, yeah, I'm not. I, I'm I not doing the it. light. <laughs> I'm not doing it. We just got to convince Jeff. That's it. Where Although, are you, Jeff? Uh, I'm in New York. I actually did just spend three months out in San Francisco. Ah, and, nice. Yeah, it was fun, but like for all of the reasons that you just mentioned, it it did not stick. So San Francisco, I've been out in California maybe about 13, 14 years. San Francisco is not the same city it was. My brother was a chef up there, so I used to go up a lot, and he's up in Napa now. But um, yeah. it's just not the same. It's it's gentrified so exponentially. A lot of people have told me that, and yep. And I mean, I don't want to speak ill of the city. I had a an, like a phenomenal time out there, but I mean, it was so clear. Uh, that like I was one of the like exceptional few who was able to actually enjoy the city as it is today. Um, yeah. And like that was not really like my favorite part. Like yeah, it, it's one of the only places where you are like very aware of all of your privilege. 
Yep, you can. I mean, it's just it's so clear. And I just I just remember there was a trip I did up there where I, I it, the shift was just so apparent, you know. And it was like areas even like the mission, which used to be um, my brother lived near there. It used to be super mm-hmm. diverse and this and that. And there's still great food there and all that related to it. Yeah. But um, boy, it had changed. And even just looking at the rent, <laughs> right? Like yeah, oh, um, I, I, that that is now double the most expensive rent that I've ever had is what I paid out there. Um, yeah, and, a lot of writers I know have had to move to East Bay. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was not fun. Um, I mean, it was. It was fun, but it was also like, yeah. it was a lot all at once. But in any case, you know, LA is not San Francisco. I no. was out in LA for a little bit, and LA was great. The people there are phenomenal. They were all so nice. Um, but you know. It I, takes I a couple years. LA I always say takes three years because it's not like you can't just walk out of your place and know where everything is. And a yeah. lot of the best stuff is so rando. It's like in a strip mall in the middle of the valley. <laughs> it's the best sushi you've ever had. And you're just going to die. But you got to find that, you know. Um, <laughs> but I kind of like that about it. Like it's it's like, you know, it takes a little bit of work. But then once you kind of get it you're kind of like oh this is the deal i don't know my two cents i'll stop selling you on it no 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 please continue forever but like (laughs) i I just don't know if i can leave my people who are all in the northeast so well i feel you but you know some of them may end up out here too (laughs) it might happen right well and so i so actually before we you know uh go any further i do want to talk to you uh about the community aspect a little bit because you uh, are a creative writing instructor and also a volunteer mentor at a storytelling foundation. So yes. I was hoping you could chat with us a little bit about that too. Yeah, I mean, I'm just um, such a big proponent of, you know, writing can feel really solitary and it can feel really um, challenging and also it can be hard for folks to figure out kind of how to come to it and how to do it. So I really kind of like giving back and doing as much as I can um, to help other writers Um And so the Young Storytellers Foundation, um, which I'm a huge supporter of, and I think I've mentored with them for, I want to say, 10 years now, um, is an amazing program um, where we go into low-income schools and we work with fifth graders, although programs have expanded uh, into middle school and high school. Um, But the primary program, we work with uh, about nine, 10-year-olds. And over the course of 10 weeks, we teach them the basics of storytelling. And then um, they write five-page screenplays. And then we have uh, real Hollywood actors come in and act them out um, at a big assembly called a big show for the school. And so it's just the coolest thing because just seeing the kids like learn how to write, write stories, um, the material is always amazing. Um, and I've had some superstar kids that have gone on um, to the biggest show, which is, you know, where Jack Black comes and like acts out their script and like, what? Jack Black hasn't done anything I've written. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, hello. And here's Leslie Mann and Jack Black starring in your screenplay in year 10. Um, um, that kid in particular, I think she's on School of Rock now. She's just a superstar <laughs> on Nickelodeon. That's awesome. Yeah, she's just a great kid. That's so hi, cool. hi, Tamara. You'll never listen to this, but I love you. Um, and so, yeah, so we do that program, and I work as a mentor and an assistant head mentor. And then on the flip side, I work um, at the Writing Pad, um, which is a school. I actually think they are in San Francisco, but um, they have two locations here in LA. I teach in downtown in the Arts District, and I teach two classes: um, Intro to Novel, and I 
teach a sci-fi and fantasy workshop for them. Um, and so my intro to novel is actually super popular right now. Um, but I think part of that is um, I teach a little differently, I think, than some people. Uh, I teach a lot about world building. I teach a lot about structure. And I think a lot of people who come to novel don't always come with a structure idea or structure background and I always say I'm like you know all those people who gave up around 100 pages in well I can tell you why structure structure is what will save you and get you through that first draft Um, I think Kyle and I need to hire you well I think that now after all that everything right Um, I told you I get excited I'm sorry (laughs) no I, I mean I'm not complaining I think this is great uh but I do want to uh do an awkward segue into the one story that you have always struggled to tell. We should uh, have a sound cue for the awkward segue. I've been <laughs> asking you for sound cues for a year and a half, and you tell me that you don't want to edit into it. Uh, what story have you struggled to tell? Well, gosh, there are a lot over the years, I would say, things that I've thought about, scribbled down ideas, picked up, gone back to. Um, I had a first, when I first started writing books, um, I kind of wrote a quarter of a novel um, that was sort of, I call it like my quarter life crisis book. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I was super burned down on Hollywood. I kind of wanted to write my own stuff, but I just didn't really know how to write a novel. And I didn't want to write scripts. I wanted to write long form. And I think I was just kind of sorting out some of my own mental problems with like just feeling burned out feeling like oh my gosh I'm only in my 20s and how can I be this burned out Um, so the book was about a uh, Hollywood assistant who through a few events um, ends up getting fired from her job and running away to Hawaii so it was like this like complete and she takes up this other life and identity so it's kind of this complete like wish fulfillment story where I was like I just wanted to quit my job and move to Maui and just kind of like, I don't know, like live a different life. Um, and I think I wrote about a quarter of it and it has never resurfaced. I think I showed it to a couple agents and it just, I wasn't where I needed to be as a writer yet. Um, and um, it was also, I think, too much of just like that kind of trying to get out this thing of frustration in my own life. Um, and I hadn't quite somehow realized that I needed to be writing spec fiction and science fiction yet somehow. I don't know. It's really bizarre in retrospect. Um, so I kind of scrapped it and it's just never resurfaced. And then I wrote another book, um, which I mentioned didn't sell, which was about a workaholic ad exec who gets uh, sent to celebrity rehab in Malibu. So I kind of had this thing running through a lot of my writing of characters who were really burned out at work or um, suffering who then kind of get this vacation escape. Um, So that book, which was called All Worked Up, um, it landed me a great agent, but it never sold. So apparently writing about work, if you're a woman writer, um, it's too stressful for readers, you know, we have sensitive temperaments. So I got a lot of like, there's not enough romances and beaches in this. You know, um, oh yeah, from major publishers, like I don't even, and so the other thing I learned was that, and I learned this quickly, was that if you're a woman and you write a book um, with a female main character, guess what, you wrote women's fiction, and I was like, didn't I just write fiction? Nope, I wrote women's fiction, Um, which was very disconcerting for me at the time, this was probably, gosh, I want to say, maybe six years ago. 
And so that was kind of a tough thing because I was like, well, you know, I'm more interested in characters that are invested in their jobs and care about their work and don't necessarily want to marry and have children as an end-all be-all to their lives. And I like to write romance, but I don't like romance to be the ultimate payoff for a female character, if that makes Mm -hmm. any sense. Like, I like them to have other goals and dreams. You know, in their like lives, usual characters, yeah, because yeah, that's what I, what I like to live my life like, and that's what I relate to, and that's how my marriage is. And um, yeah, no, and that was um, somewhat unacceptable at the time. I think it still is somewhat un- unacceptable. Even just a uh, radical idea of writing a female character who does not want children is somewhat radical right now. Still crazy, right? So um, I ended up kind of taking this hard turn into genre, and I know other writers that I know that have kind of done similar things, um, also in Hollywood. Hollywood has similar perspective on uh, female lead stuff. And I'm just like, well, screw it. I'm going to write like hard science fiction and then I'll put my women in that and then you'll make it right. Um, But I also really love writing it and enjoy it. So I guess that was part of my process. But um, yeah, I learned pretty quickly. I mean, there still is a lot of bias um, that we face in publishing, I think. And I don't know, I still Mm -hmm. get asked sometimes, like, where are those early books, like people who love them, who read them? And I'm like, I don't know if they'll ever resurface. But I was definitely channeling, you know. I wish that everybody in the world would listen to the first 10 minutes of our interview with uh, both Louise O'Neill and Dana Schwartz, um, because we, we really dig into the whole, like, you know, like women's lit versus like literary fiction uh, world. And the idea that like, there is somehow some kind of difference. Um, Well, somehow, somehow Jonathan Franzen isn't writing romance novels. Correct. No, there's this whole thing. And there's an author I love, an instructor um, who's been at Ten House twice with me, Claire Vay Watkins, who has this very viral speech. Have you heard Claire's speech? And she read a piece just when I was at Ten House um, that was about postpartum depression. And she's a mom now. Um, But that's one of her things is like the idea that if you write about being a mom, then suddenly it's not serious literature. You know, which is this experience of like whatever a lot of the world has, you know, that somehow that's not serious fiction. But of course, if a male author came in and wrote like a hard hitting book about postpartum depression and like child rearing, everyone would be like, this is the greatest book ever. Like, yeah. give him every award. Um, yeah, we see it. I, I talk a little bit about how like a book like Fault in Our Stars and stuff that John Green writes, I think it's taken a little more seriously because he's a male author. There's a lot of male authors like that where I think if a woman wrote it, it would be sidelined a little more into romance you know yeah and and i mean it does get in a sticky situation because like oftentimes it really is just not great writing but yeah i mean but you can never tell because you know there's this like filter that's applied to only certain books well yeah um jody pickholt and jennifer weiner talk about this extensively and uh-huh. um they're both fantastic writers yeah and it's funny that you say <laughs> that those were those were the two that i was referring to <laughs> Yeah, so. they're fantastic. And you tell me that they're not as good as anyone else. I've probably combined read like 10 of their books. That's a lot of books to read, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they're bestsellers. And who's to say taste? I always talk about it. I'm like, where's the dick fiction? I'm like, is that somewhere? Like, is that what thrillers are? Is that like, like, what's the, <laughs> yes. you know what I mean? So like, why, why aren't we reviewed? I mean, it's, um, so the two genres that are um, dominated by female writers are YA and romance. And we outsell everything. We're mm-hmm. those top-selling genres. We make the most money, yet we're the ones that don't get reviewed. Um, they just cut back all the bestseller lists on our yeah. on tra- uh, trade paperbacks on, you know, YA ebook. Like why, you know? Aren't YA outselling everything? Yep. 
Well, I would think. I, I, I mean, not not everything. Like you still have like John Grisham and Lee Child and stuff, but, um, but yes. Yeah, that's two it, authors. Yeah, I, know. I, mean, I don't know. I'm just using arbitrary examples. Section. Um, well, yeah, I'm I mean, not, I'm not trying to make. List. Yeah. yeah, there are. I mean, there are those big writers. But by the way, there's so many adult writers have been moving into YA. Because, yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. And also okay. into genre. That's the two things I'm seeing a lot is um, also the lit fiction. So many huge lit fiction people are coming to the dark side. And so, like, the spec fiction writers are like, what are you doing? Um, and some of them are really great at it because I think they have a real foundation in genre, like Victor Laval, you know, like where he absolutely loves Lovecraft. Like, he absolutely knows all that stuff. But then we get folks coming in who I just think don't ha- aren't steeped in it. And so they're trying to write it, but they don't really know. Like, they're writing, like, literary vampire novels. Novels, you know, I won't name names, but then they're kind of like missing, <laughs> you know, certain elements that might make them a little stronger. So yeah, it, it's interesting. But um, yeah, YA, what I hear is that the um, sales are still continuing to grow and adult fiction sales are down as a whole. So yeah. well, um, I have so- I have a million things I want to talk to you about that I will email separately. But um, <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, but this was an awesome conversation. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, um, thank you so much for taking uh, time out of what sounds like an incredibly busy life to to chat with us here. It is, but y'all like talk to me about some of my favorite things in the whole wide world, so that's not work at all. <laughs> well, so where where can our listeners find you? Um, they can find me. My website is just my name, um, jenniferbrody.com. Um, I'm on Twitter, just at Jennifer Brody. Um, I'm also on Facebook, um, Jennifer Brody Writer. And I'm also on Instagram. And I love Instagram. Jennifer Brody Writer there as well. Um, and I'm pretty reachable. So I love hearing from readers and I love talking to writers. So look me up. Cool. We'll do that. So thank you so much. That was Jen Brody, author of the Continuum Trilogy. You should go pick it up wherever books are sold. We are Kyle and Jeff of Writers Who Don't Write. You can find us online at www.podcast.com or at thepodglomerate.com. Each week, we bring you interesting conversations with writers and other creatives, uh, including topics about their career, their latest projects, and one story they've always struggled to tell. You can find Jen online at jenniferbrody.com, and you can buy her books wherever books are sold. She's also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and wherever else authors are nowadays. The music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour is Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library, and the music that you heard right in the middle of the show is from Ben Sound of bensound.com. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you in two weeks with a very special guest, which we teased last or last episode, but is actually coming next time. Sarah Novich. We'll see you then. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.